Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read together the 14 verses. Hebrews chapter 9, the first 14 verses. But before we read God's Word, let me just uh, mention to you that on the uh, visitor's table uh, out there in the foyer, there is a new book that contains all the sign-ups that you'll ever uh, need. And all you need to do is find the tab, if it's men's breakfast, ladies' ministry, or whatever it might be, just find the tab and turn to that page and then sign up. And that will keep that um, counter from being just overflowing with all kind of sign-up sheets. So I appreciate Megan doing that for us, our ministry assistant, and um, I hope that you'll use that. So let's stand in honor of God's Word as we read this portion. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, that is the holy place, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, that is the most holy place or the holy of holies, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, and thus securing our, uh, an eternal redemption." For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to purify to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. 
And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the worship that we've already experienced. The worship of song, the worship of the reading of the word of God, the worship of prayer. And now the worship of your word as it is preached and expounded. Lord, I pray that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts and our lives that we might leave here different people because we've come and we've heard and we've allowed the, the, the living word change us by the written word. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as we have already seen, a major theme in the book of Hebrews is better. Jesus is better. We, we've seen this throughout the book. Jesus is better than the angels. Just think about the angels. How majestic are the angels. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the prophets, the, the great prophets of God who, who declared the word of God in good times and in horrible times. Jesus is better than the great prophets. He's better than Moses, who, who was a friend of God, who who converse with God face to face, Jesus is, is better than Moses. And then we saw in chapters 5, 6, and 7, and 8, he is better than the Levitical priest. He's better than the Levitical priest because Jesus Christ is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is far, far better. As we come to chapter 9, Jesus is presented as the high priest who ministers in a better sanctuary. Who ministers in a better sanctuary. In this chapter, strong contrast is drawn between the old covenant sanctuary, the tabernacle that Moses built, and the new covenant sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary in heaven, where Jesus now ministers. So a big contrast is drawn between those two. And the message is absolutely clear. The old covenant sanctuary was inferior. It was inferior because it did not provide access to God and did not take care of man's biggest and greatest problem, the problem of sin. But the new covenant sanctuary is superior because it provides direct access to God and it takes care of the problem of sin. So first of all, let us look at the first point. The Old Covenant Sanctuary was inferior. The Old Covenant Sanctuary was inferior. Let's look at verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 one more time. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having a golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding manna, the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So here the author, he, he describes the Old Covenant Sanctuary. 
And let me just kind of just summarize what it looked like. I'm sure if you open your Bible dictionary, you'll see a picture of the of the old covenant um, tabernacle in the wilderness. It was a flat roof, oblong tent, 45 feet long, 15 feet tall, and 15 feet wide. It was covered with beautiful woven tapestries of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and linen, which was overlaid with two layers of animal skins. The tent was divided into two rooms by a veil woven of the same colors along with gold and embroidered with cherubim. Now let's think about the larger room first. The larger room was called the holy place. In the holy place, there were articles of furniture uh, which have symbolic meaning and point to our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the holy place, there was the lampstand. It was made of solid gold with three branches on each side and one branch in the center which illuminated the holy place. The golden lampstand pictures the divine Son of God who is the light of the world. Then the table of showbread contained 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the table of showbread pictures Jesus Christ, the bread of life, who sustains us and gives us eternal life. The golden altar of incense pictures the prayers offered by Jesus, our great high priest, in the very presence of God. And then there was the smaller room. The smaller room was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And there was the Ark of the Covenant, just a simple wooden chest overlaid with gold, with cherubim facing each other on both sides. It had a set of rings and poles on the side so that it could be carried without being touched in any way. And there were several articles that were inside the Ark of the Covenant, a box that contained the manna in the wilderness, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the, of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And then there was the mercy seat a gold plate covering the Ark of the Covenant where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. The Ark of the Covenant pictures the throne room of God where the very presence of God abides. The mercy seat pictures Jesus' finished work on Calvary's cross. And, you know, we ask ourselves, why did the author of Hebrews spend time describing this earthly tabernacle? Well, because it pictures the heavenly tabernacle where our Lord Jesus Christ ministers even today. Now, the worship in the earthly tabernacle and later in the temple in Jerusalem took place daily. It was worship. It was rituals that took place every single day. We read in verse 6, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, that is the, the holy place, performing their ritual duties. So every day, the priests would go into the tabernacle. They would go into the holy place. And they would put new bread on the table of showbread. And they would eat the uh, bread from the day before. And new oil was put in the lampstands. And they burned incense on the altar of incense. But no priest dared to enter 
the most holy place, the holy of holies. And the reason is there was no access into the presence of God. They had no access into the presence of God. Now look at verse 7. But unto the second, that is the holy of holies, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. We need to understand that access into the presence of God during the Old Testament times, during the Old Covenant, was extremely limited. Only one man could enter the most holy place. Only once a year, just one time a year, and only on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter twice. The first time, he went in with the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkled it on the mercy seat to atone for his own sins because he was a sinner as well. Then he would go the second time with the blood of another sacrifice and again sprinkle it on the mercy seat for the sins of the people. Only on the Day of Atonement would the high priest walk into the very throne room of God. And when he did... He did with much fear and trembling, much fear and trembling, because he knew that if he did anything wrong, if he did anything wrong, he would be struck down dead by God. On the bottom of the priestly robe, there were little bells that would jingle as he walked. And as long as the other priest in the holy place on the other side of the veil, as long as they heard the jingling of the bells, they knew that everything was okay that the high priest was alive and well. But if they didn't hear the jingle, well, they knew that something tragic had taken place. Also, a cord was tied to the high priest's foot. So that in case, of, in case he was suddenly struck down dead, they could actually just drag him out of the most holy place and take him out of there. It was a fearful thing, a fearful thing to enter the presence of God. Access to God was severely limited, severely limited. Only the high priest, only once a year, only on the Day of Atonement could he enter God's presence. Now, after the high priest offered the sacrifice for himself and the people, he would leave the most holy place and he would go out into the courtyard and he would lay both of his hands on the head of a goat And that goat was called the scapegoat. And the high priest would confess the sins of Israel, transferring all the sins of the nation to that goat. Then the scapegoat would be led through the narrow streets of Jerusalem, outside the gate, into the wilderness, and would finally die as the people shouted, Bear our sins and be gone. Bear our sins and be gone. What an awesome picture of Jesus bearing our sins in his body on the cross and literally taking them away. At the end of the day, the people would gather at the home of the high priest and there would be celebration and rejoicing. But still, in spite of all the ritual, in spite of all the sacrifice, in spite of all the celebration, there was no direct access to God. Man could not enter into the presence of God. 
Only the high priest. Only once a year. Only on the day of atonement. Look with me at verse 8. But this is the Holy Spirit's indi- but by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic of the present age. As long as the first tabernacle was standing there was no way into God's presence. The old covenant had to be replaced by a new covenant. A new way into the presence of God had to be established. Look at me at verses 8 and following. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with the food and the drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. All these articles of furniture in the tabernacle were rich in meaning. They all pointed to Jesus and his finished work on the cross for us. But all the priestly sacrifices, all the rituals, all the worship was not effective to bring people in the presence of God. It couldn't happen The way of access to God's presence was not open. The old covenant sanctuary was inferior. It could not bring people. It could not usher people into the presence of God. But the new covenant sanctuary is superior. It is superior. It can bring people to God. Look with me at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest, as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. The old covenant tabernacle was physical. It was a physical structure. I mean, you could walk over there and and you could touch it and the priests could do their, their priestly functions. It was a physical structure. It was man made, it was made by God. God designed it and He enabled the people of God to build it, but it was man made. But there's another tent, a heavenly tent, that we cannot see. And it's not made with hands. It's not made with human hands, but it is made by God. And as wonderful as the earthly tabernacle was, it was inferior. It, was, it could not propel people into the presence of God. It could not happen. But the heavenly tabernacle is far superior the throne room of God where Jesus ministers that enables us to come directly to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Look with me at verses 12 and following. He, that is Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing our eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve 
the living God. Now the high priest, again, every year, every year on the Day of Atonement, carried a basin full of blood into the most holy place. It was the blood of bulls and goats. And he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to atone for his sins as well as the sins of the people. But what did Jesus do? (laughs) Jesus presented himself in the presence of God by means of his own blood, not over and over again, but once and for all to secure our eternal redemption and salvation. That's his finished work, my friend. Our salvation is secure not because of what we have done, but our salvation is secure because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now, why was Jesus' sacrifice superior to the old covenant sacrifices? Why was it so, so superior? Let me just share a few reasons why. Number one, Jesus' death was final. It was complete. The animal sacrificed during the Old Covenant had to be repeated over and over again. We've seen this every single Sunday. They had to be repeated over and over and over again. And they covered sin for a time until Jesus came and offered that one and only sacrifice, but it did not remove sin. It didn't fix the sin problem. But Jesus' sacrifice did. Jesus offered himself once, once, and fixed the sin problem for all time for all those who put their trust in him. Second, Jesus' death was voluntary. I can assure you of one thing. I can assure you that those bulls and goats were not excited about having their throats cut. I can assure you that they were not just standing in line and all giddy because they were going to be the next one sacrificed. I I guarantee you that was not going on in their mind. No, they went down screaming. But Jesus offered himself voluntarily. I love what Jesus says in John's gospel. He says that no one takes my life from me. No one takes my life from me. No one took the life of Jesus. Yes, he was killed, but he gave his life voluntarily. You know, as as the song goes, he could have called 10,000 angels and destroyed this world and set him free. But he died alone for you and me. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. I have the power to lay it down. And I have the power to take it up. And then thirdly, Jesus' death was purposeful. It it was on purpose. (laughs) Those bull and goats didn't know what was happening to them. They had no idea what was happening to them. As a boy, I used to go with my father to Dillon Provision Company. Dillon Provision Company. My dad was a near-life insurance agent, and he would go there and talked to some of the clients there. And it was a place where they slaughtered hogs and packaged them and made meat and packaged the meat for, for the market. And uh, to be honest with you, I was scared to death to walk in there. It was not a 
pleasant place to be. These hogs were put on a large conveyor belt, which led them to a man with a stun gun. And the man with the stun gun, he would shock them, and then immediately with a big butcher knife, he would cut the throat of those hogs. Those hogs had absolutely no idea what was coming. Absolutely no idea what was coming. Likewise, these old covenant sacrificial animals, they didn't have a clue what was happening to them. But my friend, the Lord Jesus Christ, he knew full well what was happening to him. He went to the cross with eyes wide open. Eyes wide open. It was purposeful. It was intentional. You know, I love what it says in Luke chapter 9, verse 51 about Jesus. It says, as the time drew near for him to be taken up, that is to be crucified, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And I just love the the King James rendering. He set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. No one was going to change his mind. No one was going to keep him from Jerusalem. No one was going to stop him from making that journey. Why? Because in Jerusalem, he would offer himself up as the one and only sacrifice for sin. Oh, it was intentional. It was purposeful, his death on the cross. And then finally, it was all done in love. It was done in love. There was no love in, in the hearts of these sacrificial animals in the Old Testament. You know, if they felt anything, if they had any emotion, they felt fear, not love. But when Jesus went to the cross, his heart was filled with love for sinners. He went to the cross because he loved sinners. I love what Romans 5, 6 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. One thing is for sure, Jesus didn't have to die. No no way, way in the world he had to die. He didn't have to become sin for us. He didn't have to become sin for us. He didn't have to bear the full brunt of God's wrath for sinners. He didn't have to. But he did because of his love. Well, my friend, I hope you never, I hope you never get weary of hearing John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, trust him, not just intellectual belief, but trust, relying upon him, as Savior and Lord. Whosoever trusts Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the good news of Jesus. Well, see, the, the good news of Jesus is this. We're all hell-deserving sinners. All of us. There's not a person in this room that's not a hell-deserving sinner. If, if we got what we deserve, We would be in hell burning right now. That's what we deserve. That's what we deserve. But God has 
sent a redeemer. <laughs> a redeemer. He sent a redeemer to take our sin upon himself, to pay the judgment and the penalty for sin so that we don't have to be judged. He bore the wrath of God so that we don't have to bear that wrath. And the Bible says he is able to save to the uttermost those who put their trust in him. That's love. That's love. And you can receive this love or you can reject it. Let's look at verse 12 again. He entered once for all into the holy place. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. As our great high priest, Jesus entered the most holy place. He went into the heavenly, holy of holies and presented himself before the Father. Now sinners can come to God. Now we can come directly to God. The way of heaven has been opened. And we can come directly to God. You know, when the high priest in Israel went into the most holy place on the day of atonement and sprinkled the blood on the sacrifice on the mercy seat, he would walk out. The veil closed behind him. And it didn't enter, it, it didn't open again until one year later. <laughs> the access to God was closed for a solid year. But when Jesus Christ, our great high priest, when he offered that one sacrifice for sin, you know what he did? He ripped the veil in two. And he cried out, come on in, come on in. No high priest in Israel could say, come on in. But Jesus can. He opened wide the throne room of God. And we can come in. Look at verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of an heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through, our eternal, through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The old covenant sacrifices only temporarily made a person's ceremonial claim so that they could worship God. It was a temporary thing. But if they did anything to defile themselves, like in contact with a dead body, again, they would become defiled all over again. See, the blood of bulls and goats could not bring permanent cleansing. Could not do it. Only the blood of Jesus can bring forgiveness cleanse the conscience, and enable you and me to serve the living God. Only the blood of Jesus can, Christ can do that. Charles Colson, in his book, Who Speaks for God, writes of an interview that ABC's Good Morning America had with Albert Speer about a recent book he had written. This was years ago. In case you don't know, Albert Speer was Hitler's industrial genius that kept all of the German factories running throughout World War II. He was the only one 
the only one of the 24 Nazi war criminals tried at Nuremberg who admitted his guilt. All the rest did not. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison, and he served his full term. In the interview, Spear was asked, In your recent book, sir, you made the statement that your guilt can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? Spear answered. He said, I served a sentence of 20 years, and I could say, I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment. But I can't say that. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime. And I can't get rid of it. My book is part of my atoning of clearing my conscience. The interviewer pressed him. But Mr. Spear, you really don't think you'll be able to clear your conscience completely and totally, do you? Spear shook his head and said, no, I don't think it will be possible. I don't think it will be possible. Now, folks, only God could forgive Albert Speer of his sins and cleanse his conscience. But the gospel message is forgiveness and cleansing is available through the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, God can and will forgive all sin, even the horrid sin of an Albert Spear. And my friend, if you can't accept that gospel truth, you know very little of the grace of God. Oh, we've sung it. <laughs> Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. We, we've sung it. But if you don't think that God can forgive and cleanse any sin, then you know very little of the grace of God. God's forgiveness and cleansing is available today. There's only one condition. Only one condition. You must trust the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You must realize that you're a miserable, hell-deserving sinner. You must confess that sin. You must repent of that sin. And you must put your trust, your total trust, in Jesus Christ to save you. That's the only condition. But any sinner at any time past, present, and future, can be saved if they meet that one condition. See, if you haven't trusted Jesus, the wonderful thing about the gospel is the offer still stands. The offer still stands. If you haven't trusted Jesus, God's offer of salvation is still open to you. Because there's no sin, there's no sinner too great for the grace of God to forgive. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Maybe you're here today and, and you're still troubled by, by some nagging sin in the past. And, and you find it hard to understand how God can forgive you or how you can forgive yourself. 
The gospel is Jesus and his grace is sufficient for the worst of sins. In fact, in God's sight, there's no difference between what we might call a little white sin. You know, just a little and a horrible sin. It's sin. You know what sin is? Sin is falling short of God's glory. That's what sin is. Falling short of who he is. His righteous standard. That's what sin is. I often share with people that what it means to fall short of the standard of God. I say, suppose we went out in the churchyard and picked up a stone, a rock, you and me. And, you know, I might be able to throw that rock further than you, or you might be able to throw that rock farther than me. But neither one of us can hit North Pole with that rock. None of us can. See, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us have fallen short. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Horatius Bonner, the famed Scottish pastor and hymn writer, sums it up in one of his many beautiful poems. Listen to these words as we close. I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. I bring my guilt to Jesus to wash my crimson stains, white in his blood most precious, till not a stain remains. My friend, that's the gospel. Have you embraced it? Have you embraced it? There's only one gospel that saves. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.